Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Mark Amender, and this is Knowledge Wonderland. It's Christian Stephen, a conflict photojournalist who is 21 years old. At just 17, he went to Mogadishu, Somalia for the first time. By 18, he was caught up in riots in the West Bank. And incidentally, that year, he also first produced, co-wrote, co-directed a documentary for Vice on death squads in Baghdad. He really is one cool, well, mama jama, because I want to keep this podcast Safe for Work. This podcast is being distributed by ACAST, making good stories great. Thanks to ACAST for hosting this podcast. And now our guest, Christian Stephen, as I said, 21 years old. You will hear he does not sound like he is 21, but I guarantee you, I have checked his rings. He is 21. He rebelled, as one does, by decamping from a semi-comfortable home in the UK to Somalia and Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, where he's been held prisoner, has been tortured, had his head nearly chopped off several times by men wielding very sharp machetes, been shot at, been bombed at, and is now a very well-regarded conflict photojournalist. His work has been published uh, in numerous publications, including Vice, Vocative, MSNBC, Riot.org, He was the first to call attention to ritualized, serialized child rape in Afghanistan. He knows more about the world at 21 than I do at 37. We were brought together to work on a project where Christian would embed himself on the American campaign trail, bring a fresh set of eyes to to political reporting. He knew enough to know that his death-defying war correspondent swashbucklery would not wash on Donald Trump's campaign plane. He was very fascinated by the American experiment. Um, That did not take place, and part of the reason is that he is being kicked out of the country for reasons that he will explain. Explain to me precisely why it's your last week in the States again. So uh, I was here for a short while on the visa waiver program, the tourist visa. and uh, As you are a citizen of the UK. Correct. British citizen, um, happily so. Um, Well... It's my own fault that it didn't work out, and I'll explain because the Republicans in the aftermath of the Paris attacks decided that anyone who's been to Iraq, Afghanistan, or Syria in the last five years is no longer allowed to use tourist visas. That wipes out a crop of incredible Brits and and Aussies who are some of our best journalists. That's exactly right, and also, you know, many who have embedded. I mean, I've embedded with the United States Marine Corps, Royal Marine Commandos, uh, from 
top to bottom, every single kind, and yet, after being shot at and in combat and IED'd and mortared and, uh, well, imprisoned a few times, I'm no longer allowed to visit you in your humble abode because the Republicans fear I may be a jihadi. Mm, so this visit, as we are sitting here, mm. we are, we, uh, we are we're subverting the established order. Subverting the established order and my exit from your great United States is a physical... Um... And no one, by the way, I, went, I mean, it's curious, but I wonder why no one had the... Actually, no, I don't wonder why. Mm. The, fores, the, the foresight to say, you know, but there have to be exceptions because there's a class of people who do incredibly important work, aid workers, Correct. journalists. And those exceptions are supposed to be coming through. But, you know, there are yeah. whispers of you know journalists and aid workers and those who work with NGOs, so on and so forth. Yeah. But that will take far too long. And it will have to go through a vote and another vote and then people will bicker and then they'll go for whiskey and then they'll yeah. forget about it and then you know, it all goes around in full circle. But it really comes to, down to a point of my exit from the United States is a physical consequence and manifestation of the fear that has overtaken the empathy that happened with the refugee crisis. That dead boy washed up on the beach and there was an outpouring of sympathy and empathy and we are wonderful people. We will welcome you with open arms. We'll have you in our bosom. Then as soon as the Paris attacks happen, the fever breaks and people go mad. Feral. And therefore... Again, we, we live in times that are uh, moment to moment. We, we I mean, uh, that's the thing. We're, we're in the, I think we're in the post... And I borrow this from Doug Rushkoff, but we're in the post-narrative age of how we perceive the world in the sense that we perceive it moment to moment. Now, we are much more reactive than we were. Reactive, definitely. I, I, I have an interesting point. I think, I mean, I find America fascinating. I'm, I'm, um, I struggle with the dichotomy of being incredibly cynical. Um, obviously, from where I travel, there's enough that'll make any self-help teacher go and just dig a hole and... But um, from my side, I, I, believe, I love Thomas Paine. I believe in what he did. And I believe in what came after that. The waterfall effect, the halo, the aftershock. And I believe, however mangled the experiment in democracy is, I like it here. And so for me, it's interesting to see the United States move from a post-war sigh into needing to so desperately cling to any small information morsel that will keep them from looking at the melancholy that is sort of drifting through the entire nation and the people. I mean, in the West also, in Europe, very much so. There's a melancholy that nobody wants to look at because it hurts. Like when you cut your leg, you know, it's happened. You don't really want to look at it because it makes you feel ill. But even if it's something like your internal organs hurt, you just try and forget about it or you have a drink to anesthetize. I wonder what, what the central organizing principle of Europe is now. I mean, what do Europeans... Um, how, what is Europe, Europe's identity in the aftermath or the age of, of the, the... I'm not going to call it refugee crisis because mm. that puts the onus on the refugees. Mm. Um, but what will be a much more 
disputatious and civic culture. Well, I mean, the, the rise of the right wing is something that's visceral and which is, clear and present. The right, uh, the, the right wing is the, the rise, although it's the, the rise of the right wing seems to be that organizing principle that's coming up. Organizing and principle, I, but also, I mean, it, as always, those who are in the far extremist right wing are condemned by the mass population. The difference is the condemnation is not nearly as strong as it used to be. It is it used also to be a condemnation that allows them to accept lesser forms. Correct. More lukewarm, yes. murky right wing forms. Absolutely. Right. It's like uh, casual racism doesn't do it justice. But it really comes down to a fact of instead of going, of course, these people are insane and they, well, they represent Nazi tendencies. At this point, it's much more of a, I probably agree with those people, but I still have to condemn them outwardly because of the influx of refugees and because the Arab states are taking no one. Look at Gaza. They have nowhere to go but the sea. The West Bank, same deal. But also Syria, Iraq. I mean, Turkey's taken millions. Jordan also. Yeah. Dubai, Saudi Arabia, where are they? Nowhere to be seen. Qatar, nowhere to be seen. The only places in the world that I've seen a Ferrari pull up next to children eating trash. It's absurd beyond belief. And it's also a complete mockery of Europe and the West, even though, yes, we could take more refugees. I mean, I spend most of my time working with refugees. I spend most of my time in Iraq, in Afghanistan and Syria. I know what they're running from. And yet I still have the anger in me that the Arab states are not doing enough. And I am content in the fact that when I do see right-wing groups, I do have that visceral gut reaction of, you are terrible, terrible people, and you are corrupting, and you are poison in the well. However, for those who live in these places like Vienna, and Hungary, and Budapest, and Macedonia, all of those... There is a changing of the guard mentally in the way that they they are turning. And that's something to be watched closely and f- maybe not feared, but understood so that we can aid. Um, when we had breakfast the first time, mm. uh, we had a very fancy Hollywood hotel that's a hangout for celebrities. Terrifying. The... The trash haulers were doing what they were doing, and they, in the process, um, loudly closed one of the trash bins. Mm. Um, and you jumped. Mm. And moments later, an LAPD helicopter flew overhead, mm. and you cringed. Mm. Um, you have uh, a form of PTSD that isn't much talked about, but is mm. just as real as PTSD among soldiers who have seen combat or have not even seen combat into the zones. Correct. Um, how are you dealing with that? It's an interesting one in that way. I mean, I have acute post-traumatic stress disorder in the way of... Um, it's similar but not identical to that of combat troops from British, American, well, coalition armies. Um, I have done Iraq and Afghanistan... I've had combat in both, but I've also done the Gaza War, Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, Central Africa Republic with the cannibals and the Muslim Seleka and the Anti-Balaka Christian militia with the machetes, um, Syria 
Um, first Western journalist in Syria in six months um, with ISIS two kilometers away and and then uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, and then, um, which is an Islamic brigade, and then um, Assad coming from the sky with his 1970s helicopters that drop barrel bombs. Barrel from, bombs, yeah. Filled with chlorine, shrapnel, and they use an iPad to drop them on the civilians. It's absurd. So mine is, mine is exacerbated by the fact that I have multiple combat zones to deal with, but also that itself is combated by the fact that I willingly go to all of these places and wrap all of that up in the place of, I didn't have a platoon. I didn't do it with anyone. Therefore, when you return, um, photojournalism PTSD is different from military PTSD because you can't share it with anyone because you have no one to go and have drinks with and say, do you remember that time X, Y, Z happened? It's yeah. Can I share something with you? I was at, um, all places, uh, w- one of the popular gay bars here. Mm. It was a celebration of their 13th anniversary, and there were lots of balloons. And I was there with a friend of mine mm. who uh, is weirdly... Um, no, I mean, it, it, it really affected me. Mm. Uh, 41 years old, um, remembers as a kid being terrified because bombs would explode. You know, mm. in, in, this was in... Um, the very, very, very late stages of uh, the Vietnam conflict. Huh. Um, and the post-Vietnam conflict that continued without Western power. And right. He's afraid of balloon pops because it terrifies him. Mm, and I, I hate the instinctive trigger. And you are at a bar like this and everyone is having fun and happy. Mm-hmm. And you look over and the terror in his eyes... Mm-hmm. And also noticing that no one else notices the terror in his eyes. Correct. It's like, whoa, well, what's going on? And like, we we, we, we went outside. We had to leave because huh. um, he couldn't he couldn't handle. It. Interesting. I. It's interesting you mentioned. That. Well said. I. Yeah, no one's really pointed that out before, and that is a real thing. So I mean, for me personally, you know, the people that are my age who were in college and doing what they do and all of that. I mean, I had a girlfriend in Los Angeles here. And um, she likes to dance and she likes to go to these places and all of that. And, um, you know, I, 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 f- I feel bad if I do not go and I want everyone to have a good time and I don't want anyone to suffer for my choice in life. I don't want anyone to have to feel bad about me because of what I have decided to do with my life, my career, my, my vision, my journey, all of that. But at the same time, if I'm walking into a room that is thumping out bass and has lots of misguided machismo and women who are getting blackout drunk because everybody's just trying to forget about their week. I'm not letting go and letting God and giving into bass nectar. What I'm doing is I'm looking at every single exit. I'm looking at every single man who has muscle mass beyond my capacity, how tall they are, how fast they can run. And I'm also checking pockets and I'm checking how their hands move. And I'm looking at the lighting and I'm thinking about how do I get all of my people here out if something were to happen. And I know that it's happening and I know that it makes no sense, 
but it happens all the same. It's like when you and I had breakfast and the trash people did their thing and there was the bang and then there was the helicopter. I wasn't thinking, oh, that's disturbing. I was thinking, right, well, if something happens, how do I get Mark and Eric out of here? Which is hard when you, your body is having that thought process. Physiologically, you are preparing for that while your mind is saying this is not happening. Stop being so odd. Stop being so weird. Why can't you just be normal? Why won't you fit in? Those of us who care about you worry every time that you go that you're going to be killed or kidnapped or beheaded. Right. Do you worry about that? And why haven't, frankly, as as insensitive a question as this is, oh. why haven't you been... I know you've, you've been in prison before. Mm. So, okay, that you have been. But how come you haven't... Why aren't you dead? Um... It's a great question that I'm still trying to answer. And do you, frankly, putting yourselves in these extreme situations, Mm. not that you have a death wish, I don't believe that fate can be tempted, Mm. all that bullshit, Mm. but what the hell are you doing? I, when I first got into it, I wanted to prove to some phantasm or specter or vaporous judge that I could do it and that I was enough of a man to make it through. And I wanted the excitement. I was young and dumb and it's the equivalent of wanting to be an action hero. Then you have your first trip and you get that kicked out of you very quickly. And anyone who's done that usually quits after the first trip because you see things that you can't unsee and then you decide, well, you know what, I'm going to go back and have a nice life and forget about it. But it got its teeth in me and then after that, I wanted to see the raw nerve of what makes us tick as humans. I wanted to see why we do what we do to each other and what we're capable of doing each other and not in like a sadistic or morbid way but much more of a I didn't understand it and I wanted to explain the world to myself and if I could explain it to others while I was doing it then that would be a good byproduct which is why journalism was the obvious step and then it got to a point where I accidentally started caring about my job and it was a relief to me in a way to be useful And by being useful and by making other people feel less lonely, by going other places where no one wanted to go and sitting down, even if there are bombs in the distance and there are bullets flying and we could get kidnapped, if I sit down with that person and go, what's going on here? And why hasn't anyone asked you about it? And what do you have to say about it? What's your opinion? That's that's enough. What separates you, though, from people who do that and and then can't leave or don't leave or are kidnapped? What has? Has it been luck? I think it's luck to a certain point. Um, There's certainly a few times that I think pure charm, however however self-aggrandizing that sounds, but it's actually a very important tool. Like in Central Africa Republic, there was a a militia leader called Captain Babykiller who decided to put a machete in my neck because he didn't like my face. And then it really comes down to a fact of trying to banter because that works on patriarchy and the love of money. Therefore, you amalgamate what you know and the atmosphere you're in to create a orbit around you that they can find non-threatening 
subservient, yet they also want your respect. How did, what, do you remember what you said to Baby Killer? We talked about Little Wayne. We talked about Little Wayne, and we talked about how, because anti-Balaka means anti-machete, which is the Christian militia in Central African Republic, and they wear amulets because they believe that amulets will protect them from any weapon. And they don't, obviously. I've seen it happen. That's just something. But they believe that by eating the flesh of a doctor, you gain intelligence. By eating the flesh of an athlete, you gain their speed. And by eating the flesh of a child or a baby, you get youth. And so that's what they do. And so this wasn't a very safe or advisable situation to be in. So it really came down to the fact where real fear isn't when you panic. Real fear is not when you are crying or screaming or running. Real fear is when you empty out. Real fear is when you feel yourself go out of your shoes. It's like somebody taking a bag of sand and putting a knife in it and then it just goes. That's real fear. And the only thing that holds during that real fear is the adrenaline that can only be used for brain and mouth and lung for vocal cord. And in answer to the question of why haven't I died yet, I'm not sure. Uh, but the other, the, other, the other point being I'm not afraid of it. And that's not because I'm brave. I'm not afraid of dying because I'm brave. I'm not afraid of dying because... I'm not afraid of dying because I'm tired. And I lack the constitution for suicide. And I don't feel depressed. But at the same time, I'm exhausted. Because everything that I encounter that relates to human beings is disappointing in a way that grieves me and never, ever fails to disappoint except in small increments. Yet, my optimism comes from the fact that I do see small increments and even though the world is cruel and dark, there is light. You can stop for a little bit, but you don't. No, because I have a momentum in me and a dull, throbbing pressure in the back of my head when I wake up in the morning that says I could be doing more. And because I put so little stock in my own survival, if nobody wants to go, why can't I? Have have prominent organizations refused to hire you or or not um, you know, accepted a freelance pitch from you because they were too worried about your safety or didn't feel that they you know, that, that or felt that they would be on the hook. Oh no, it's all a it's all a complete thresher. They have complete clemency and Pontius Pilate hands when it comes to freelancers. Yeah, that's true. They are not beholden. But at the same time, I've never approached any of those companies beforehand. You just, you have the work with I always go, and then I come back, which means that I can do what I need to, and I can go where I need to, and speak with who I need to, without anybody worrying about it. And then when I come back, that's when the work is picked up. Who do you admire who is currently, or not currently, what other journalists do you admire? Tim Hetherington. Who is? Tim Hetherington was a British photojournalist who uh, co-directed the documentary Restrepo. Okay. Which was Oscar nominated. Yep. He also worked in Liberia, uh, Afghanistan, and um, uh, Sudan. And he lived in Africa for a few years. And he was... Um, he was the only person whose work I found reflected what I wanted to be doing which wasn't the scenes of I mean my work is is less ultra violence 
and less explosions and blood and guns and firefights and combat. My work is much more intimate because war is not Call of Duty. War never has been. War is haunting and quiet and um, uneasy. And war is 97% silence and boredom and 3% shit your pants, terrifying ultraviolence that knows no framework for understanding. And war is also at distinct places. You wrote about child rape in Afghanistan mm. long before others did. Correct. You, you, did, you wrote it and you, you shot. This was my only experience with the people that you deal with, which was that the New York Times and multiple other outlets um, used my research and, and did not cite the article. But the thing is, from my side, I'm happy that the story got out. Yeah. Even if it bothers me that my time was wasted. Not wasted at all, but that's the wrong word. But my time putting into that long-form seven, 8,000-word piece was largely ignored until it became something that could be pimped out by establishment media. I mean, you, one of the things that you said to me offline, which rings true, is that there, there are... I mean... Altruism is a very nebulous concept. People just want something of value from you. Totally. I, I mean, I think. And we'll give you no quarter to get it if they feel that they can get it from you. Completely, which I think ties both of our conversations at this point together, which is that, in my mind, altruism is a myth. Yeah. Altruism, altruism does not exist. No one does anything for others unless they are benefiting from it, which is a hard thing for people to hear and agree with. But my greater point being, which you and I discussed, which is. That if altruism is a myth and people do things for other people to get something out of it, that doesn't make it negative. It just means that you understand your own ego, your own need for affirmation, your own need for validation, your own need for purpose, your own need for meaning, and your own need for someone to see you as valuable in their lives. If you can use that and have the offshoot and the byproduct of that be helpful for others, then that's more than anyone else is doing really. The vast majority. You know what I mean, I sat with um, I sat with a very prominent NGO in a safe house in Mogadishu for seven days, and because they couldn't get the paperwork through, they watched the entire series of Lost, and then they left, and didn't see to a single person, and then they put out a report saying they did X, Y, and Z, which is the last time I've worked with any of those big organizations. Because in my mind, as cynical as I may be, I still believe that if you are professing to do something, then you have an obligation and a sacred charge to see it through in whatever, in whatever way that you can physically or mentally or, or in whichever capacity. You said your purpose in life is to make people feel a little less lonely. My purpose in life is to make people feel less lonely, but also going back to the altruism part, I make people feel less lonely so that I can prove to myself that I am not alone. And that is the Knowledge Wonderland podcast. Music, as always, by Tintin B, Facebook slash Tintin B. Henshi Hikari was kind enough to produce this episode. Follow me at Mark Amender, M A R C A M B I N D E R. If you want to support this podcast, listen to it, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it. We'll see you next time. Bye.